If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the September 21st, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. The nation's at a very pivotal moment in our history and future, so tonight, we've gathered some of our most powerful past pieces to engage your mind in other directions, to keep the sadness and rage at bay for the next hour. Although it's currently unavailable to stream, we glean lessons from a documentary about the impact of the Holocaust on the gay community. We revisit a sapphic nomads feature as Maggie and Katie explore the LGBTQ community of Nepal. Abby D's takes a mammogram, and ponders the ex-gay movement. Then Steve Shacklin recalls his time with Mel White's Soul Force and a meeting with Jerry Falwell Sr. in Birth of an Activist and Dinner with Jerry. But first, the 411 on paragraph 175. The pink triangle has been adopted as a symbol by the gay community but its history and meaning have not been well understood by most gays and certainly not by the public at large. A documentary from Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman explores a history that has not been told on film and has hardly been looked at in history books. It's called Paragraph 175 and is narrated by Rupert Everett. Half a century ago, the Nazi regime set out to rid the German nation of homosexuality. Close to 100,000 men, most of them from German Christian families, were arrested. An estimated 10 to 15,000 were sent to concentration camps. Today, fewer than 10 of these men are known to be alive. I am Rob Epstein, and I am co-producer, director of Paragraph 175 with my partner in filmmaking, Jeffrey Friedman. I'm Jeffrey Friedman. Rob and I have been making documentaries together for 14 years. Our first film together through our company, Telling Pictures, was Common Threads about the AIDS epidemic. And we made uh, The Cellulite Closet. And Rob made The Times of Harvey Milk before we started working together as a team. Paragraph 175 was an archaic anti-homosexual German law from the late 1800s, which was revamped by the Nazis to make it easier to round up homosexual men, largely just by inference. So if someone's name was found in an address book, for instance, of someone who was known to be homosexual by implication, they could be brought forth and tried for violating paragraph 175. So they made it much broader than its original intention. I asked Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman about the genesis of the documentary. Rob and I were in Amsterdam in 1996 for the theatrical premiere of The Celluloid Closet there. It was a fabulous premiere with like hordes and hordes of Dutch drag queens. And while we were getting ready to go to the, to the opening, we got a letter at our hotel from uh, Dr. Klaus Mueller asking for a meeting. We had no idea who this was, but we were interested to meet him. He said he had a project he wanted to talk to us about. Then the letter was on United States Holocaust Memorial Museum letterhead, so we had some notion of what his area of expertise was. 
And over the course of a two-hour lunch, he told us about his work of the past several years, which has been specifically to do oral histories with homosexual survivors of Nazi persecution. And he wanted us to consider working with him on making a film about some of these men who he said would be willing to come forward for the first time and tell their stories. Of course, we immediately understood the necessity of the film and the necessity of it being done quickly because these men are old. And if a film were to be made, it would have to be done pronto. Out of the eight or so men who are, who are known to have survived persecution by the Nazis and who are alive and willing to come forward, we spoke to five for some time and one uh, Jewish lesbian woman, Annette Ike, who is very helpful in painting a picture of what life was like in Berlin before the war. The time was very bad. People couldn't get work, and the inflation was a horrible thing. At first, we didn't believe it. We laughed about him, that such a, a person like Hitler, and that the people would stay behind him. Promises, promises. They believed it. According to Epstein and Friedman, the persecution that came with the rise of Adolf Hitler followed a period of unprecedented freedom. Berlin, specifically, really was a mecca for gay people, very much in the way that we think of San Francisco or Amsterdam today, I think. It seemed to be a place where pretty much anything went. Although there was a law in the books, just as there's a law in the books in many states in this country, it wasn't observed until the Nazis came to power and found a new use for it. I should say that the whole history of the Pink Triangle really has been nothing but mythology for all of us until, you know, until a witness can come forth and say, this indeed happened to me. Then we're, in effect, just talking about mythology, and that's what this history has been until now. When I got the first time to the police, and they, they asked me, you are a homosexual man? And I said, yes, I am. Everybody knows it. I, I never said I'm, I'm not. I had an affair with three or four students, and I was the bad man who seduced these students. I was 28. The students were 18, 19, 20 youngsters, in their opinion. The numbers are really tricky and difficult. We're talking about a group that was not well identified and you know about which there was no really clear policy within the Nazi hierarchy, except that the Nazis were against homosexuals. That was clear. So there really are no absolutely hard numbers to go by. Historians have more or less come to a consensus of 100,000 arrests, 50,000 convictions, and of those, 10 to 15,000 went to concentration camps. Once they got in the camps, the death rates of homosexuals were among the highest of the non-Jewish prisoners. So it makes sense that there would be so few alive today. Paragraph 175 stayed on the books. In the Nazi form in West Germany until 1970, the East Germans reverted back to the old version, the, the original paragraph 175, the original wording, and repealed it a year before the West Germans did. That's one reason that, that it took so long for these stories to come out. This really is the last untold story of that period because the men were still considered criminals after the war. The Allied judges that went in and reorganized the defeated German nation after the war made a determination as to how concentration camp inmates were to be treated, and they classified the homosexuals the same as they classified the criminals. So you could conceivably have been liberated from a concentration camp and then sent to prison to serve out the rest of your sentence. So there was no incentive for them to come forward and tell their story. They were living in a society that regarded them as criminals 
And they're also from a generation where homosexuality equals shame. This has been a visit with Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. It's easy to think that the rise of a bigoted authoritarian leader was a one-off and that it couldn't happen here. Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! Maggie and Katie are a lesbian couple who, billed as the sapphic nomads, journeyed around the world in search of LGBTQ communities. Tonight, we revisit their visit to Nepal. Beautiful and chaotic Kathmandu. Shopkeepers, tourists, and livestock all compete for space along the narrow and winding streets of the Nepalese capital. Just off a busy road in a suburb of the city lies the offices of the Blue Diamond Society, an NGO working for LGBTI rights in Nepal. Founded in 2001, the Blue Diamond Society has grown into a network of organizations stretching across 40 different regions in Nepal. Sunil Babu Pand, founder of the Blue Diamond Society, won a seat in parliament in 2008, becoming the first openly gay politician in Nepal. Within the past decade, the LGBTI movement in Nepal has seen a tremendous amount of progress under Pant's leadership, including legislation drafted for same-gender marriage, the legal recognition of a third gender, and the introduction of LGBTI education in the schools. In October of 2012, Nepal even hosted the first ever LGBT Asian Games. These major achievements have ushered in both accolades and critics over the years. In addition to winning a number of awards from international groups, the Blue Diamond Society has also had to fight off organized efforts to undermine their work, including harassment, threats, and bogus corruption charges meant to sabotage their funding. We had the opportunity to sit down with Blue Diamond Society Executive Director and Founder Sunil Babu Pan. We asked him if he felt there was homophobia in Nepal. Uh, maybe a little bit, uh, but I think uh, it's not scary at all. Um, people are tolerant and uh, people may, some people may dislike the fact that someone is gay or lesbian, but uh, there is no hate crimes, there is no violent attack. That's what is uh, good about Nepal, you know. Um, the violence is, is, is very, very little here on anything, any ground. Um, but I think if, you, if we compare even to India, Nepal is much more liberal, much more tolerant, not just tolerant, much more accepting and embracing LGBTI um, people. So, you know, there are a phobia against women, there are a phobia against um, low caste people, there are phobia on anything, any people find it. Um, yeah, there are, but, but I think, uh, you know, people who are homophobes probably are educated and Western educated. And there are, they've been to West, but miseducated. The West constantly fuels uh, homophobia in the press, there are, uh, you know, Christian Muslim leaders shouting loudly and then organizing protests, etc. The churches speaks always against LGBTI. That's how they get educated from. So the general people are, are perfectly fine with this. So we always be careful to those people, Nepalese, who have been to the West. We then asked Pan where he thought the attitudes of tolerance in Nepal come from. The culture is very tolerant. We have Hinduism um, and Buddhism both are uh, very inclusive um, religion and uh, there are several deities who are gays, lesbians, trans, you know, cross-dressing or changing their gender um, fluidly all the time. And these are widely revered, worshipped god and goddesses. Uh, there are temples. Uh, now uh, we see, you know, two lesbian deities being worshipped where there are uh, intersex god being worshipped. And most of the interesting thing is, you know, in Nepal, I think more than 50% of those god goddesses and temples are worshipped in 
to their sexualized images or sexual organs. If you look at Pashupati Temple, the largest Hindu temple in Nepal, uh, people go and worship the Shiva's phallic. Um, and there is next to it is, is Unmatta um, Vairab, um, which is Shiva's another form in an in a erotically uh, excited uh, pose with, with a huge erected penis. And people go and worship it, which you can't imagine in, in, in Christian or Muslim religion. Finally, we asked Pat about some of the strategies behind the Blue Diamond Society's success. The strategies are, are always been very simple. You know, we have our vision and then we calculated what are the strategies. Some we, we uh, thought uh, it's need immediate attention, some we thought need to wait for a couple of years. So first thing is uh, what we recognize is um, creating a visibility and networks at the grassroots. So from class, caste, creeds, um, socioeconomic, you know, classes because we realize uh, people need to know that we are everywhere and we are part of every family. So it's not just Kathmandu, not just uh, upper middle class, uh, you know, educated young, young gay men, um, but it's, it's, it's everywhere. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's uh, lucky in a way, but also very courageous that um, lower middle class or poor class LGBTI came out and join the movement. Um, there was two reasons, because they have nothing to lose, but also they were the most in need of our services, um, and which uh, turned to be very beneficial to the movement. So that's the first strategy. Second, you know, we tried to lobby the political parties, government, etc., but uh, and bureaucracy, it, it didn't work, and then we didn't push too hard. So we took the route uh, to go to the court, Supreme Court. Uh, because we uh, thoroughly analyzed the court is much more progressive and pro-human rights than the government and bureaucracy. So we uh, succeeded that and then it's a you know, big uh, stamp uh, on our movement, big approval on our movement. And that just gave us a, a you know, nice, uh, non-violent, um, very passionate weapon. Uh, to move forward, which do not harm anyone, but just brings benefits. We'd like to thank Sunil Babu Pant and the Blue Diamond Society of Nepal. To learn more about our project, please visit our website at www.nomaddocumentary.com. Until next time, this is Maggie Young with fellow Sapphic nomad Katie Cook reporting from Kathmandu, Nepal. Stick around. We'll be right back. Bowers versus Hardwick, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Events that led to the Supreme Court case Bowers versus Hardwick began in August 1982, when Atlanta, Georgia resident Michael Hardwick was arrested by police for engaging in sex with a male companion in his own bedroom. Hardwick was charged with violating Georgia's sodomy statute. Hardwick sued the state, believing the sodomy statute was unconstitutional. The federal appellate court agreed, so Georgia appealed the case to the Supreme Court in 1986. Ultimately, in a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court ruled the rights of gays to engage in sodomy was not protected in the Constitution. Justice Lewis Powell from Richmond, Virginia, was the swing vote in the case and said to his law clerk, I don't believe I've ever met a homosexual. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Marty Wegbright. Hello, I'm Cece McDonough, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. Doctors use a mammogram to look for early signs of breast cancer. Regular mammograms are the best tests doctors have to find breast cancer early, sometimes up to three years before it can be felt. As IMRU lost one of our regular contributors to the disease, it's a special issue for us. Abby Dees reports. 
I'm way overdue for my mammogram. It's been about six years since I had one. And of course, the more time that goes by, the more I get nervous about getting a mammogram, afraid of what it might show. Does breast cancer run in your family at all? It doesn't. My um, mom had a cyst in her breast in the 60s, around the time that I was born. This tells you how much technology and attitudes about this have changed, that a cyst is a completely normal thing. Lots and lots of women have cysts. It's important to have them checked out, but now they do these, you know, outpatient things to check them out if they're at all concerned about them. But my mom tells me the story of palpated assist. There might have been a mammogram. I don't know if they did them the way they do now. And um, so she went in for surgery to remove the cyst. And she signed a piece of paper saying that if they felt that that cyst was cancerous, that they could perform a mastectomy on the spot. So she signed the paper. She went in for surgery. She said she didn't know if she was going to wake up with her breast or not. And she woke up and, you know, one, two, there were two. <laughs> And it was just a cyst. It was a benign cyst. And we all have benign cysts. So I know that is so not the way they do it now. Now there's so many ways to investigate a cyst. And so many friends of mine have had cysts and lumps that had a question mark on the test. And it's no big deal. Yeah, I'm 42, so I'm due. And I haven't had one yet. So I'm kind of excited to see this experience with you to kind of know what I'm in for to see it first before I actually have to do it. Wow, I didn't know that. I just assumed you'd had them before. Oh yeah, it's easy. I think it's a non-event. There's always a little bit of nervousness when you get a test for something because then you're committed to finding out what the answer is. And I'd rather know now. And if there is something that comes up, you really do want to know because I know so many survivors of breast cancer. I know so many people who have caught it early and because they've caught it early, it really, the word cancer has got so much associated with it. But I know that there's so many ways to approach that. The waiting room with, I don't know, a dozen people, a dozen people waiting to go in, every single kind of woman. I've been given a little shorty gown that's like a sh wraparound shirt. <laughs> and I can leave everything else on, but I have to take my top off and my bra off and put my little short pink gown on. There's patients who come in just for a screening mammogram, which is what you're having today. And basically what is done, you have two views of each breast, and then the tech will take you in, have two views of each breast, and then you leave. There's no results given right away because it's a screening mammogram, mm -hmm. okay? You leave, you'll get a report within a few days, you'll get a letter stating your results. If there's anything um, that the doctor sees that they question, we'll call you back for more views. Mm -hmm. So usually what we do is give you a phone call and make an appointment for you to come back. Um, my doctor told me that he said, now don't be surprised, they're probably gonna call me back because I have dense breasts. And he said that this was a question of, that California law now says if the technician finds that there's dense breast tissue that they would just do this as a matter of course. It doesn't necessarily mean anything is wrong, but it's a follow-up. It's true to an extent, but we've always done that. Yeah. I mean, it's always been the case where women who have dense breasts, mm -hmm. it's harder to visualize something inside the breast because of all of the white matter. Mm -hmm. Patients with, quote, fatty, mm -hmm. unquote, breasts, not cystic, oh, just fatty. Uh -huh. Fatty breasts are great breasts to do mammograms on uh -huh. because they show up as black. Uh -huh. And then when there's something growing, which is white, it's mm -hmm. very obvious. Okay. When you have dense breasts, you have naturally all this white tissue interspersed mm -hmm. because it's dense. Mm -hmm. So those are the types of breasts that it's more difficult to diagnose a cancer. You were here last with us in 2007. Have you had a mammogram no. in between that time? Okay. No. And are you having any problems today no. with your breasts? Wonderful. And any family history of breast or ovarian cancer? No family history of breast cancer, cystic breasts, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. And have you had any surgeries on your breasts no. ever? Okay. Have you ever had a breast screening ultrasound where they just did an ultrasound screening for no problems? They just kind of went over your breast. No. Okay, no. Great. If you have any questions for me, what I'm going to do right now, same as before, we're going to take four to six pictures. Okay. The doctor will read the films later, and if they do need you back for anything, we will call you back. Do it. it just looks like kind of a big printer or something. It's, it's, yeah. it's just a sort of little table surface and 
presumably the top comes down and with my breast in the middle of it. This is called a bucky. This is Mm -hmm. where the detector and all that is. So you lay your breast on that. And the x-rays come out from up here Mm -hmm. and go to the detector and your breast is right here and this is the paddle we use to compress your breast. Looks simple enough. Yes, very important to compress the breast because basically you want to compress the tissue out as much as possible Mm -hmm. to avoid superimposition that you may get called back for. Mm Okay. What do you do with a woman who's fairly small-breasted? Um, we use a smaller paddle, and mm-hmm. we do a lot of pulling and pushing. <laughs> but we can do it. But it really can be done. Yeah. I mean, sometimes if they're super, super small, it's a little more challenging. But you get it. But we get it. Yeah. Um, my mother-in-law never gets a mammogram because she's worried about radiation. Radiation is very low dose. Mm-hmm. Um, you get, when you take a chest x-ray, this is probably an eighth of a chest x-ray. Really? Pretty close to that, mm-hmm. yeah. You can go ahead now and stand right here and okay. open up your gown, my dear. All right. I'm going to start with your left breast. I am putting yeah. my breast against this machine. I want you to turn your feet facing the machine and turn your head towards me so you're looking this way. Perfect. What I'm going to do is going to feel a little high, but don't worry about that. Angela, feel free to comment on the things you see. What I'm doing now, I'm pulling you in just to get as much breast tissue on there as I can. Okay. okay? So far, so I'm good. I'm going to go real slow. Don't worry. We're going to compress your breast. I'm basically leaning against this machine, and she's just sort of moving the table and the little plastic piece on top of it, kind of to create a, well, a boob sandwich. A little bit more, okay, you all right? Yeah, it's not yet boob panini. Almost there, we're almost there. We're good, okay, well, let's make the first exposure. I just want you to hold your breath right where you're at, don't move. Okay, you can go ahead and step back now. You might want to lift up. There you go. Give me just a few seconds. How long have you been doing this? Oh my goodness. 20, over 20 years. So you've seen technology change quite a bit. Amazingly. Yes, it has changed quite a bit. And it's changing for the better. Yeah, we're doing digital now. Where before they used to film screen, the last four years we've been in digital. And it's clearer. You can see through dense tissue better. Mm -hmm. And um, the images, you don't need any film. You don't need to develop anymore. Mm-hmm. It goes straight to the computer, straight to the doctor. I tell you, they look perky yeah, in <laughs> x-ray version. Yeah, it's just sort of swirly and gray. Yeah. I mean, it's what it's supposed to yeah, look like. Yeah, these are the vessels. Uh-huh. And this is your, your breast tissue. All yeah. this air, it's all fatty. I got to say, I've seen pictures in the past, and this mm-hmm. is really clear. Yeah. That's really yeah. obvious. Yeah. Really nice. So you've seen a bazillion breasts. Yes. Is there a such thing as a typical breast? Not really, no. Everybody's different. Yeah. Yeah. No, everybody's mm-hmm. different. There, we have um, dense, mixed, fatty, mm-hmm. all kinds. Yeah. Tiny. Tiny, Tiny, big. You're, you're a little worried, Angela. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now turn your feet back over to the, and look at me this way. Good. Leaning against this machine again? Yep. It's going to have you relax. Do you feel uncomfortable way. having somebody else touch your breast? Not really. I'm going to go real slow. I think that makes some people nervous. I think it does too, but, you know, she's touching me respectfully and obviously for the purpose of getting a good picture and it doesn't, this is way easier than getting a gynecological exam or a pap smear. Okay, we'll shoot the next one. You can go ahead and stop breathing right there. Just hold your breath. It's almost like looking at this screen like Abby is a cartoon figure (laughs) and we get to see a variety of angles of your breast and how it gets kind of smushed. Yes. There's the basic two views, the cranial caudal from mm-hmm. above, and then we do a side view to get all the mm-hmm. breast tissue on. So the next two are going to be side views. Okay. Yep. So it's a vertical panini. I got to tell you, this it's not uncomfortable. It's more just it's a little awkward because you're kind of yeah. leaning against this machine. You know, you don't usually go breast first in most things. Right. Now, I want you to take off the left side of your gown all the way off. Okay. This is the view where we're going to get under the arm and the rest of the outer part of the breast tissue. Mm-hmm. Maybe I spoke too soon. And this one was might be a little more uncomfortable, but okay. not too bad because we're getting more anatomy in there. Okay. So what I want you to do now is just kind of bend slightly forward. Wonderful under there. Mm-hmm. Bend your elbow and kind of relax your arm. Don't hold on too tight. Okay. What happens is everybody has a different um, threshold and yeah. also the breasts compress differently. You can breathe. Some people you can compress all the way and your breasts will allow it. Yeah. Others you just go to a certain point and, and it's it. and yeah and you want to compress so the breast is nice and taut. That means mm-hmm. the breast tissue spread out as far as it's going to go. Yeah. 
We know that we've got all the breast on there by getting all the muscle. This is your pec muscle. Oh yeah, I see that. Pec muscle has to go down to the nipple line and this is inframammary fold because mm -hmm. you still have breast tissue down here. So that's what mm -hmm. you want to try to get. You're not going to be able to get this on everybody, but you, this is what you go Which for. Which is basically the stuff underneath the breast. Because yeah, it goes underneath yeah. a little further. Breathe and you're all finished. Oh, that was easy. You did really good. Thank so how, do, how long do you think the overall procedure normally takes? The overall procedure should take about 10 minutes. And the mammogram itself was not that big a deal. You know, I'd rather go out for coffee and donuts. But it was quick, it was easy, they don't have to take any blood. <laughs> and I feel sort of stupid that I was avoiding this. Women age 45 to 54 should get mammograms every year. Women 55 and older should switch to mammograms every two years or can continue yearly screening. Besides being physically healthy, our Abby has some thoughts regarding mental health, specifically the ex-gay movement. When Alan Chambers, the president of Exodus Ex-Gay Ministries, publicly apologized for the damage he caused LGBT people, I forgave him. There are few things more powerful for changing attitudes about LGBT lives than religious leaders publicly sharing their personal journeys toward understanding. No need to flagellate him for past wrongdoings. He's here now. Let's look forward. But my fellow LGBT commentators weren't so eager to hand out forgiveness to anyone who asks. If you look at the comments to LGBT media reports on the apology, you'll see a litany of the psychological and spiritual torture that Chambers and his ilk have perpetuated. The issue people had wasn't that they simply disagreed with the message of Exodus, but that that message caused real and profound harm. In light of this, how could I be so willing to let it all go and move on? The problem, if you want to call it that, is that I have never once doubted that my sexual orientation was perfectly fine in the eyes of my Creator. Even in the face of discrimination at work and school, or fear that my family would never understand, or that being gay would doom me to a life of loneliness. I laid all my concerns at the feet of other people, not God. My spirituality has only ever given me strength and determination in a world of human frailty. I have no idea what it's like to think that my very being, as mega-pastor Joel Osteen likes to say, isn't God's best plan. A new and improved way of saying, God still thinks LGBT lives kind of suck. When yet another Exodus leader... Former VP Randy Thomas apologized a few weeks later. The responses were just as damning as before. Some commentators suggested that he donate all the money he ever made from Exodus to PFLAG or any other organization doing the cleanup work. I get this. We throw words like forgiveness around the same way that we call anyone who manages to survive a calamity a hero. The power of those words is too easily diluted by sloppy, facile use. Here we have men who, correctly, acknowledge their mistakes. Good. This is important. But just how admirable is it to decide to do the right thing after you've been doing the wrong thing time after time? I truly don't know. Both men have made declarations to keep providing support and ministry to people who choose to keep trying to be straight. Hmm. I have no idea why you'd want to do anything other than make peace with your gayness, unless you still feel that there's something inherently wrong with it. This shows me they do not yet understand the depth of their complicity in others' pain, nor have they sacrificed enough to atone. And how could they ever do enough to fully make up for the slow, pernicious, soul-etching effect of the not-God's-best happy talk? These apologies, at most are statements of intention to begin the process of helping piece together shattered lives and spirits. No more than that. And also, no less. I still want to forgive them. I have the right to, as much as anyone else has the right not to. I was struck by one online comment, alone among the many justifiably angry ones, from someone named Jean. God made me gay, he said. He also made me have the capacity to forgive. Today I am free to be me, because I chose to forgive and move forward, fiercely. Like Jean, I have to believe that there's power in my forgiveness. I won't disparage those who won't let these ex-gays off the hook, 
But there must be some kind of healing in accepting an offer of reconciliation. My forgiveness means that I expect a lot from these men and that the hard work begins now. This is Abby Deese, and this commentary was based on my syndicated column, Thinking Out Loud, distributed by Q Syndicate. We'll be right back with Steve Shacklin's visit with Jerry Falwell Sr. after this quick break. The Mistake, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 1986, Justice Lewis Powell voted with the majority in the Supreme Court case, Bowers v. Hardwick. The case decided that there was no constitutional right to privacy for the intimate relations of gay couples in their own homes. Four years later, in 1990, Powell took a second look at the case and regretted his vote. I think I probably made a mistake in that one, he said. Justice Powell believed he had never met someone gay, even though he had at least four gay law clerks while serving on the court. At that time, most gays were closeted, even some law clerks at the Supreme Court. Justice Powell retired from the court in 1987. He died in his home in the Windsor Farms neighborhood of Richmond, Virginia in 1998. He is buried in the city's Hollywood Cemetery. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Marty Wegbright. Hello, I'm Pandora Box, and you are listening to I Am RU Radio Magazine. If loneliness drives some girls to prostitution, it drives some men in another direction. The history of homosexuality is as long as the history of man. From the glory that once was Greece to the decadence that destroyed Rome, homosexuality has been both despised and idolized. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Frederick the Great, Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo are but some of the names that any homosexual will point to as examples of virility and a defense of his way of life. Though nothing new, homosexuality is having an upsurge since the war. Whether it is an actual increase or merely an increased public acceptance is a point to be argued. The Mattachine Society, an organization for homosexuals, claims that one male out of six is homosexual. Homosexuals no longer hide in shadows, giving secret signals of recognition to each other. But rather they have joined together into groups or clubs in an attempt to seek freedom and acceptability for their type of sexual inclination. They can be found in all walks of life and on any street in this lonely world, forever searching for whatever it is that drives them on. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. There's been a lot of talk lately about Jerry Falwell Jr., but the late Jerry Falwell Sr., who died in 2007, was a fountain of hate until the very end. Only a few years before Satan took him home, Reverend Mel White, the founder of Soul Force, accepted a meeting invitation from Jerry Sr. and took along a contingent of his parishioners, including activist and songwriter Steve Shacklin. Oh, of course, the first thing that appeared on television when I finally got to my room at the Days Inn in Lynchburg, Virginia, was Jerry Falwell and his old-time gospel hour. I read this to you a while ago from the Living Bible. It's better to eat soup with someone you love than steak with someone you hate. I have to confess that I entered this march to Lynchburg with fear and anger in my heart. Fellowship is better than friendship. Few faces on this planet could cause my stomach to turn in disgust like Reverend Falwell's. We have friendship with gays and lesbians, but fellowship can only be in Christ. 
Shall I be perfectly candid? I hated him. Thank you for joining us for this morning's worship service from Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg. But hate Virginia, is the opposite of what Dr. King and Gandhi Jeremy and Bowen. Jesus preached. The opposite of what I needed to feel if I was going to be an effective witness. I felt completely and utterly unworthy. Martin Luther King, when he faced the bitter hatred in the South, told his followers that the greatest sin they could commit was to deny the possibility of redemption for his opponents. King said there was no room for violence of the heart, tongue, or fist. As the 200 Soul Force volunteers began arriving, I found I could barely talk to them. So I found a room on the third floor of the First Christian Church in Lynchburg where there was a woman sitting there folding tracts. I sat and joined her, happy to have some kind of busy work to take my mind off my unkind thoughts. And then I saw it in the corner, a piano. After we finished the tracks of paper, I wandered over to the piano and just began playing, alone in the room. I played furiously, letting the loudness punch me in the chest, trying to feel my mom and dad's loving presence and reminding myself that I was entering into a controversial project that would bring criticism from all sides. Already the voices were loud. From the hardcore right came the words that Falwell was getting in bed with fags who deserve to die. From the left, we were told we were legitimizing a hate monger by giving him a public forum. <laughs> as if Jerry needed us to have a public forum. In fact, as we drove up to the church, there were police on guard and whole slews of posters and signs. God hates fags. AIDS is a cure for fags. Jerry's fags. All in loud day glow colors held by angry, hateful people, letting us know we were going to burn in hell and that we were beyond redemption. Mel White, whose long friendship with Jerry was challenged when Mel came out as gay, separated from his wife and coupled with his love, Gary, kept reassuring us. He said, look, when I worked for Jerry, we were assaulted by gay radicals who sent HIV-tainted blood and urine to us in the mail. These are the only gay people Jerry's ever known. I'm telling you that I know Jerry. He's an honest and loving person. We must give him a chance. That night, Friday night in the high-arching sanctuary at the First Christian Church, the night before our meeting with Reverend Jerry, I was still unsettled. The service was wonderfully informal. Gospel music was being sung. People were telling their stories. And then they said they were going to have a memorial service for those who died because of who they were. Through many one by one, people began carrying photos on posters of the faces of the dead, bringing these posters and placing them in our pews so that they could sit among us. Matthew Shepard, Billy Jack Gaither. I bowed my head and tried to find my center still resisting. And then I looked up. Coming down the aisle was a face I knew, a face I loved. Bill Clayton, dead at 16 from a suicide after a gay bashing. Bill Clayton, whose face I stumbled into on the internet three years ago, whose face I returned to every day for a solid week before writing his mother. Bill Clayton, whose story was first posted on my site, and just as I saw his face coming toward us, the person carrying his poster turned and put Bill's face right into our pew, and I completely fell apart. I didn't just cry. I wept bitter tears for ten minutes at least, literally, rivers of tears as wide as my cheeks, free-flowing like from a wide-open faucet running down my face, my body racking itself with huge heaving sobs. I thought about Bill's mom, Gabby, Alec, his father, Noel, his brother. Maybe it was God reminding me why I was there. Maybe it was Bill himself there in the room reminding me that I was doing the right thing, that we were doing the right thing. I bowed my head and for the first time in a long time prayed. Amen. I thanked God for giving me the opportunity to confront my fears, my hatred, my doubts, and my revulsion. That same 
I thanked God for continuing to give me the opportunity to be here with the prospect of peacefully, prayerfully, lovingly facing a man I have loathed for a very long time. I felt Bill telling me to be gentle, to be loving, to be real. I could barely stand after the service. My legs were shaking so. My eyes were red and sore. I was depleted. But when we went back to the hotel room, I slept with the beautiful, innocent face of Bill Clayton lingering in my mind long after the lights were put out. That was Steve Shacklin's Birth of an Activist. But wait, there's more. Here's the conclusion, which he calls Dinner with Jerry. Swing low, sweet chariot. We entered the gym of Thomas Road Baptist Church School to have dinner with Jerry Falwell. It's coming for to carry me. We found a room full of round tables with his people sitting in every other seat. We were all wearing Sunday morning clothes and Hawaiian lays made of tea leaves, which we would give to our Thomas Road partner sitting at the table. We also brought little ceramic Christmas tree ornament angels, and most importantly, booklets with all of our faces, names, and stories. I spied a bright-eyed college student, a female at a table near the back. She had a pretty smile and reminded me of Cherry O'Terry on Saturday Night Live. I was so nervous about this exercise in humanity that I can't even remember what I said at first. But suddenly I remembered the lay and I asked her if I could give it to her. Oh yes, she said, I was wanting one. So I lifted the lay and put it over her shoulders and gave her a little kiss on the cheek. I asked her to tell me about herself student, majoring in music ministry. I told her I used to be a gospel singer and went to a Baptist college. At some point, she told me her oldest brother was gay. He was my best friend growing up, she said, her eyes finally floating down to stare at her hands. He was the one who led me to the Lord when I was 11. She explained as if to make sure I understood what a good person he was. Unfortunately, her story was of a conservative Christian family torn apart and wounded by the presence, distance, of a gay child. I love my brother, but the Bible does say homosexuality is a sin, she assured me while looking deeply into my eyes. I had to stifle a laugh. It was about the third time she'd mentioned it. It strikes me funny when people feel the need to constantly remind you what a sinner you are. I reached over to get a bottle of water from the bowl set up in the middle of the table when I realized the table didn't look like they were ready for a dinner, and I was hungry. I read this to you a while ago from the Living Bible. It's better to eat soup with someone you love than steak with someone you hate. It turns out that some of the people on the other side of our divide felt it would be unbiblical for them to eat with sinners. God hates sin. Meaning us. Fellowship is better than friendship. We have friendship with gays and lesbians, but fellowship can only be in Christ. And rather than cause a fuss, our side quietly said it was okay. Eating a meal wasn't the goal. Contact and communication, those were the goals. But still, I'm diabetic and I needed food. So I sat there with my stomach grumbling, talking to this girl, and suddenly, just like last night, I began weeping again. But this time, quietly and sorrowfully. There was just so much pain in her eyes. She even reached over and apologized as if it was her fault. I'm sorry, she said. I didn't mean to make you cry. No, I said. 
I've been crying all weekend. It's just that you can't imagine how often I've heard a story like yours. Jerry Falwell then got up and spoke. He apologized to us for language we found objectionable. He said he realized that love the sinner, hate the sin was a cliche, and that he was guilty of seeming to hate the sinner. During the speech, he reminded us many times that homosexuality is a sin, of course, which had me laughing again. Reverend Mel White then spoke briefly, but preferred to walk into the audience and let us tell our personal stories. The story that stabbed me in the heart most profoundly was from a woman who described herself as a conservative Christian who believes homosexuality is a sin. She said her daughter had come out to her as a lesbian and that in one terrible moment, she had told her daughter, after you get fixed, you can come home again. After that, the daughter refused to have anything to do with the mother. The mother said, I should have picked up my purse and my keys and, and drove 550 miles to where she was and make her talk to me. But I didn't. A year later, her daughter was found dead, hanging in her own closet, a suicide. And that's when Jerry Falwell said something that totally blew a lot of my friends' minds. He said, I was asked once what I would do if my son came out to me and told me he was gay. I would tell him that I love him, that I believe it's a sin, but I would say, I love you. This is your family. This is your bedroom. It is now and forever your home, and I will always be your father and your best friend. I burst into tears again, of course. Conservative Christian people listen to Jerry Falwell. They won't listen to me, but they will listen to Jerry. Some of them honestly believe that throwing the kid out of the house is the correct Christian response. Mel White correctly said, this one statement will save lives. Then it was all over. Reverend Jerry came back into the room where he shook every person's hand. I shook his hand and had my picture taken with him and then we left. So what did we accomplish? Did we change anybody's mind about homosexuality? No. Did they? No. But the world saw Jerry Falwell invite 200 openly gay people into his church. We presented him with the names and the faces of gay kids who were victims of violence, and we confronted him on language which endows an atmosphere of hate. We told our stories and we allowed ourselves to be seen as the people we are, and we saw them for the people that they are. If they weren't Baptists, I'd compare this to a dance. <laughs> Two strangers on a dance floor, circling each other, staring into each other's eyes. This gathering in Lynchburg was a beginning, an introduction. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't easy. There were plenty of chances for us to get insulted or angry, but the soul force principles of nonviolent resistance kept us focused on not hitting back when we felt attacked. As a result, I feel, no, I know, we made a strong, serious impact. And next year, I want Jerry to invite me to sing in his church. Afterwards, I'll take him to McDonald's. Who knows? Maybe I can even straighten him out on Leviticus. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks and happy birthday wishes to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Doug Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org 
and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, because we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org, even during our hiatus from the -the over-the-air schedule during fun drives. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Cats. Sending positive thoughts tonight to Justice Ginberg's family and friends and to a grieving nation. Good night. I come to sing a song about hope. I'm not inspired much right now, but even so. I came out here to sing a song, so here I go. I guess I think that if I tinker long enough, one might appear. And look, it's here. One verse is done. The work's begun. I come to sing a song about hope. In spite of everything ridiculous and sad, though I'm beyond belief, depressed, confused, and mad, well, I got dressed. I underestimated how much that would take. I didn't break until right now. I sing of hope and don't know how. So maybe I can substitute strength because I'm strong. I'm strong in There's something real behind it. I have to try to show my daughters I can find it. And so today, when life is crazy and impossible to bear, it must be there. Fear never wins. That's what I hope. I said, hope, the work begins. That's what I hope.
See, I said hope The work begins